For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. and enemies, heroes and villains, welcome to Epic Realms. Today's guest is an award-winning game designer, author, editor, and co-founder of Monty Cook Games. Please welcome the one and only Shauna Germain to Epic Realms. Did I say it right? It's perfect. Yes! Perfect. Yay! <laughs> we were talking a little bit beforehand that I'm very Minnesotan and I really didn't want to put that Minnesotan long A on there because people make fun of me for saying Dagger and Dragon. <laughs> you got it right the first time you're safe all right <laughs> so if i if i screw it up later people yep. know I, I i went out of my <laughs> uh so a lot of our guests and friends of the show have been to a place called game hole con and they keep telling me to go there and you were at game hole con this year right yeah how is that experience for you how is that location for you and what did you do while you were there <laughs> You know, it's actually one of my favorite, favorite conventions. I think they do such a good job of creating something that's inclusive and like it's small enough that you feel like you get to actually talk to people, but it's big enough that there's a lot going on. Plus they have awesome food carts, which, you know, is really important. <laughs> Coffee and ice cream. Um, and it's just a really great atmosphere. I feel like I get a chance to hang out with fans. So I ran some games. I signed a bunch of books. Uh, we had a booth there. I did like a drinks with authors event. It was super fun. And we got to gab about writing for a while. Um, so it's like one of those, I don't know, it's just so cozy, which sounds weird because it's actually getting bigger every year, but it's still kind of keeping its cozy vibe, which That's I love. That's great. I love that. So before your first book, when you were like becoming, becoming who you are, could you look ahead and be like, I'm going to be doing all these events at at at, at event at conventions like Gamehole Con or Gen Con or Emerald City Comic Con, those kinds of things? Did you see that in your future? I didn't even know they existed. I mean, I I like when I was like five, I wanted to be Stephen King, right? So like, <laughs> I and I didn't know that writers did things other than write. So like, it never would have occurred to me that you would go somewhere and do a thing with a bunch of other people and. Um, you know, especially in the geek realms, like, I don't know, like I grew up in the seventies and like, I feel like geeks were just a thing that you were at home. I didn't even know like that you could hang out with other geeks until I got to high school and started playing D and D with my friends. And I was like, Oh, there are other geeks. Like, this is cool. So yeah, no, I could never have imagined that. Like, it's just wild. How did you get introduced to tabletop role playing? You mentioned D and D in school. Like what was your introduction there? My introduction was I was about, I was actually about five or six and I had a babysitter who brought over bunnies and burrows. <laughs> and <laughs> I didn't really understand any of it except that I got to be a bunny and I got to stomp around on the floor. And it was the best thing that had ever happened to me at that time because I love bunnies. I have a bunny tattoo. Nice. Um, and so that was my first introduction, but I didn't really know that. Like, I just thought it was like a game like any other or maybe a story. Um, and then it wasn't until high school that I kind of went back to it. I played on the guys' soccer team because this was long enough ago that we didn't have a girls' team. 
And all the guys on the guys' soccer team played this game that, and they like went out into the woods and they camped and they played a game like where they ran around in the woods with sticks. And I was like, this sounds right up my alley. (laughs) (laughs) And it was lovely. Um, And the thing that it taught me that I think is so funny now is the thing it taught me was I didn't want to be the GM because the GM had to sit at the picnic table while everyone else got to run around in the woods with sticks. So (laughs) I was like, that job sucks. (laughs) I want that job. So did you ever end up GMing then for that group or did, did that just like. I did not know. No? I didn't GM until much older. Yeah. Okay. I was much older than I GMed. Like we were all sitting at the table at that point. <laughs> nobody, nobody ran around in the woods when I picked role-playing back up at a later age. <laughs> when you, when you started doing writing and stuff, did some of that role-playing growing up play into it or was it completely separate? Oh, that's an interesting question. I feel like I was always a really imaginative tomboyish kid, you know, like I, I, I had big, dreams about like what the world could be and I was always building things and drawing maps like even before I understood that that was a thing that people did like I was drawing like I grew up on a farm in upstate New York so it's total hippieville so I I would draw maps of like the barns where all the animals lived (laughs) so I feel like sort of role-playing and storytelling have always been like a big part of who I am even though I didn't have any boxes to put them in the way that like you do now and I certainly did not know that it could be a career it could be a thing that you did every day for the rest of your life was that was not even a thought in my brain. Yeah, that's awesome. Did you um, did you have a problem at the beginning of your like writing career? Like, were you doing other stuff and be like, oh, I hope this this works out, or did you just like write a thing and all of a sudden you were doing awesome and successful? Ooh, that's complicated and a long time ago. So let me. <laughs> all right. Um, so I started writing, um, I started as a poet, actually, okay. and had some success as a poet, but poetry does not pay at all, mm-hmm. obviously. And so at the same time, I was bartending, because I just was putting myself through college, I realized that I probably wasn't gonna make a living as a fiction writer. So I started college, I have a TV radio degree, a psychology degree, I did firefighting for a while, I kind of did all the things. Um, and then I started bartending to pay off my college loan. And during that time, I was writing on the side. So I was writing poetry. Um, and getting stuff published, but again, like not, there was no money in that. Um, And then I started working for a local newspaper and learned a ton of skills about like hitting deadlines and getting stuff off your plate and not just sort of spending 16 hours on the same sentence. Um, And then I started writing erotica and found out that you could make a ton of money writing erotica. And I was like, this is my thing. Um, And so I wrote erotica for quite a few years. Um, It was really wonderful and lucrative. And then I sort of got to the point where I didn't have any more erotic stories to tell. I was sort of like, I don't don't really know what else to say about sex. And I didn't want to keep going just for the money because it felt weird. And and I was itching for something new creatively. Right. Uh, so then I switched to like doing some essays and some fiction. <laughs> and then I started writing for like World of Warcraft magazine. Um, and so it's been this whole uh, thing. And then for a while, I was working at a technical coffee roasting magazine. So it feels like I've sort of touched on a lot of things. I was writing for Glossies magazines for a while and trade publications. Um, and so I've been, I, if, if you can write about it and make money, I've probably done it in my life. Nice. So yeah, that was not the trajectory I expected at all. <laughs> and I would be remiss if I didn't ask this, uh, cause I know people are going to be like, why didn't you ask this question? Um, when it comes to the adult novels and writing those and putting those together, how do those differ from writing, say a fantasy story or, you know, other books is the structure different is the way you tell the story different. Do you have to limit how much of different things you put in there? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think on one hand, 
like sex stories have a very specific format, right? Because sex has a very specific format. And I've always said since I started writing that my themes were sex and death. And I think the reason for that is because to me, they feel like these places where you can really deeply touch your humanity. You are naked in whatever way that means. Mm -hmm. You are exposed, you are vulnerable. And, and I'm really interested in stories of love and grief and those deep emotional places where we are most human. And I feel like love and sex are two, your sex and death are two places where that happens. We are, we are stripped away of all of our sort of contrivances and bullshit. Yeah. Um, and so I'm really interested in those places. And I think that one of the things that has stayed the same for me through stories and poems, no matter what genre I'm in, is this touch to those places of humanity. Um, and so they're very different in some ways, they're very different on a marketing sort of genre perspective yeah. in terms of, um, yeah, the stories that you tell, but for me, the heart through them all is still very much the same. Um, and I think also, I'm, I really love breaking the rules. So if somebody tells me I have to do something one way, don't <laughs> do it do that way. Amen to that. <laughs> There's just something in me that can't stand being told that there's only one way to do something. I find right. that infuriating. What was the trajectory then going from, you know, some of those to being like, okay, well now I'm writing. Cause you, it sounded like you kind of bounced around and you slowly gradually worked your way in to the gaming sphere as far as like writing and telling stories goes. What's kind of the, was there like a specific point that was the big trajectory of like, okay, this is now what I'm doing. Yeah, you know, there were two trajectories, I think. And the first one was I hadn't written about game stuff at all. And I sort of had like gaming and in particular video gaming, which is a, a love of mine, were sort of these things that I, I did on my own back. I was probably in my early 30s at that point. And I, I heard this program on the radio where these women were talking about how some new study had come out that said that women were the growing number of gamers and particularly professional women who were like career driven and had had success. And these women were poo-pooing that idea. They were really like, oh, you can't have a career and be a gamer. And I got so mad because I was that person that they were talking about that I instantly started writing for gaming magazines like the World of Warcraft one and sort of putting myself out there as someone to like sort of prove that that we existed and that we were we were doing all the things. And so that was my first like <laughs> sort of angry foray into right. that. Um, so for a while I wrote about games, but I didn't write games. Right. Um, and so, and so then at one point I had met Monty and he and I were talking about this project that he was going to work on. Um, and he was like, it's this little game. I don't know if anyone's going to like it. And he was describing it to me. And I was just like, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. I totally want to work on this game. And right. I just sort of, like, I have lots of editing experience. Please allow me to edit this. And so we talked about doing it. And at the time Kickstarter was really new. This was 12 years ago. And so we were like, this Kickstarter thing sounds cool. Let's try it. Let's see if we can, you know, make it work. And so that was actually the first game project that I worked on sort of from the inside design perspective. Okay. Um, and and I had a great mentor, obviously, because Monty had lots of experience. Right, right. Um, and was able to bring my editing experience from lots of other things, including, you know, sort of technical places into, um, you know, the actual game design aspects. And so that's how that all started. And then it kind of just blossomed from there. We had an unexpectedly good Kickstarter and then had to have a conversation of like, oh, do we need to start a company? I think we need to start a company. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like so much of my life, I feel like, it, there was this moment of passion or anger or, you know, or prove something. Um, and that, that was a moment of passion. I just felt so excited about the setting that he was describing that I wanted in. And what was that setting? 
That was Numenera. Numenera, yeah. right. Yeah, that was the first one that we did. So, and it was just science fantasy. And it, it, so, that's something that I've always loved, but didn't really have like a term for. And the description of it, like being so far in the future with all this technology, just, I don't know, it just got me very, very excited. Yeah, for sure. And of course it blossomed Monty Cook Games, right? Yeah. So we said yes to making comfy, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> How was uh, yeah. that trajectory? Because I've talked to a lot of people that kind of got their start with a Kickstarter and then like, oh, I need to make an LLC and we need to do all this stuff. How is that going from the two of you all the way to now there's, you know, other writers, authors, editors, yeah. you know, game designers, artists, you know, web design, <laughs> media, the list goes on and on. And, yeah. you know, you and Monty started this. Yeah, sometimes it blows my mind, like, to think about. Um, so we we started with just hiring two people. We knew we needed someone to take care of, like, the a lot of the administration stuff. And then we knew we needed someone to help us sort of distribute and and talk to the printer and like all the things that we didn't know how to do we knew how to make and design a game um we knew how to work with artists we knew how so so we started small we hired someone full-time someone part-time and then as it happens with small businesses we were working all the time we were just working so hard but we had this philosophy that we weren't going to hire someone unless we knew that we could afford them to keep them for forever, ideally, right. um, that we could give them healthcare, that we could give them a 401k. So we had all these parameters about whether or not we could hire someone. And so until we knew that that could happen, we just sort of worked ourselves to the bone because it was a small company and a new company. Um, and had we had super great fans who were really supportive of the fact of what we were trying to do. And that was awesome. And then as we sort of stabilized I would say like at the five-year point, we kind of became an adult company and we were like, okay, now we are functioning like a real company. Now we can hire some more people to take on things. And so it's gotten so much smoother. We have an amazing team um, of, of just super talented and good people that we absolutely adore. And so it's it suddenly feels like it's a whole different business because we aren't all sort of busting our asses quite so much. Um, and it, 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 it is this organic growth where you're constantly checking your gut against all the other things to make sure that like you're succeeding and you're going to be able to succeed and you're not, I don't know, it's really complicated. And thankfully, like I said, we have a great team and we have really good skills, but we often are like gut checking, heart checking. Does this feel like the right decision yeah. for us and our people and for the games and for our players and, you know, for the world that's important too. So it's a lot. <laughs> so having this company you guys can put out, you know, books, games, whatever. Do you have a struggle at all? Or is this a thing where you're like, I, this is a project I want to work on. Mm. Do I work on it separate from Monty Cook? Or do I try and utilize Monty Cook to get this done? Do you have that kind of an issue at all? You know, we, I think we don't, we're really, um, you know, we're really open. We, we say to our designers, tell us what you want to work on and, like we'll make it happen but we're also like and also if you want to freelance for other people that's cool if you've got your passion project that's cool we don't own any of that stuff that you do like we don't want to right we want you to be as creative as you can be outside of your real life or outside of your mcg life um and so we say like if you have something that you think would be cool and you want to bring to us like tell us about it and we'll you know and we'll see if it works um we also say to all of our designers like the next Kickstarter, what do you want to make? Like, tell us, tell us what you want to make. Cause we don't want to be driven by 
like, it sounds weird to say we don't want to be driven by the market, but we don't, we want to be driven by passion. And so if our, our people aren't excited about what they're making, it doesn't have, it's different. It just doesn't work as well. And so I feel like for me, because I do a lot of fiction, I, I feel like my fiction's over here. I do some freelance and then MCG stuff. Like I know that MCG will let me do my passion projects in the game space. And I think that I can keep them separate without worry because of the, all those things. And it's, I don't know, we see our, I think we see our, our team sort of blossom because they can do that. And there are companies that don't allow that. And I think it's, right. I think it's bad for creative people to be hemmed in in that way or to feel like their ideas are going to get taken or that something's not theirs. Like it's just kind of crappy. And yeah. So we try to stay away from all that stuff. And to have a company where you, you feel safe to say, I have an idea. Yes. I want to, I, I want to talk to you about, and then, then, right. and then knowing that they are open for that and then go in and be like, okay, so I have, I have this idea for this game and, you know, insert whatever Monty Cook game has been out or is coming out and have it be like, well, that's, you know, that's different from what we do. Let's do it. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's yeah. not, well, that's different from what we do. So you should go elsewhere. It's let's, right. let's give it a shot, you know, to be open right. to that and to know uh, as a, as a worker in a company to have that comfort to know I can say this and not just not, you know, and it, they can be listed. Like there are ears that will listen and be accepted and, yeah. you know, something like that it is really, really cool. Do you have a yeah. lot of, have there been a lot of things where things were brought up and I don't want examples, but have there been times where people bring things up and are, you know, and everyone's like, yeah, that could be a good idea, but probably not. Does that does that happen? Or is it like um, somebody comes up with something and you're like, let's do it? I think the latter is more common. And I think the reason for that is because everyone has a good sense of like what we do as a team. Mm -hmm. And so they're not going to bring us something that's outside the realm. Like we have one, our art director just started, did, did this really cool podcast, um, like a narrative podcast. And it's really cool and it's awesome. And he did it with some friends on the side and he, like, we're supporting it. We're super thumbs up and it's great and we love it. But he also wasn't like, hey, do you guys want to become a podcast company? Right. So like, yeah, I think yeah. the, the team really understands like what we do and and if they're excited about it and it fits in our parameters, they tend to bring it to us. And if not, they're just, they know that we'll just support them sort of from the outside in whatever way we can help. Um, so yeah, we don't have a lot of that. We do have like we do have a lot of great brainstorming sessions like, okay, we're going to do this modern magic book. Let's talk about all the things that can go in it. And like, of course, everything can't go in it. And some ideas that we're throwing at the wall are ridiculous. But that's the joy of brainstorming. Um, so yeah, we do a lot of that. Was there a difficulty going from, you know, we're publishing something like our role-playing games, right? If you do a Numenera, putting that out there and then, hey, we should publish a book. Monty Cook was that a difficulty or was because you were part of this uh telling stories or you know writing a novel for say Numenera isn't that big of a problem because you guys know what steps you need to take yeah I think they're I think they're very similar I think it's been it was much harder to do something like a game like Invisible Sun than it was to do a, a, like a, our novels because our novels are sort of just books with a different story on the inside. Yeah. Um, and so we already had art directors who knew that. We knew we had writers who knew how to make stories. We knew we had editors who'd edited stories. Doing something like Invisible Sun, which is like, you know, however much many pounds of different items that was, was much harder for us because of we didn't have the experience yet with like, how do we make a thousand boxes? And how do we make like all these cards and all these weird statues? And so I think we're always pushing ourselves as a company 
because because we're creatives and we like to do that, right? We like to right. do different things. Um, and so we also did this thing called The Darkest House, which was like an online game with an app. And that was difficult because it wasn't a book. Right. And so I and, and they're always difficult in the way you don't think they're going to be difficult. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so some things have been surprisingly difficult, but things like fiction versus uh, games, I think, is a pretty easy is much easier, a smoother transition. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about your role within the company now. Like you obviously co-founded you and Monty Cook put the thing together and then started pulling people in. We kind of talked about that, but now you've got many hats. It looks like besides co-founder owner, you, you know, managing editor, senior designer. <laughs> what is this? What is, what are all of these tasks, you know, on your day you go into work. What does that mean? Like, obviously we don't want any like secrets or anything, but what, <laughs> yes, uh, what, what kind of like, what does that entail? You know, you mentioned to me, you just had, you know, meetings all day or whatever. What, what does your job really entail from a uh, uh, an audience perspective as far as a gaming company looking towards Monty Cook? So I think it's a, it's interesting to sort of break this into three kind of answers, which I will try to make quick. So the first That's answer funny. was I did everything in the beginning, right? Like we talked about, right. I was doing art orders and I was editing and I was writing and we were packing boxes. And I mean, it was just, it was if it needed to be done, we were wearing those hats. And then I would say sort of at that year five, six mark, uh, I was I was help still on the leadership team. We have a leadership team that makes like big decisions for the company. Um, and, I, and you know, then we have an ownership team, which is the owners of the company who make sort of bigger decisions. Um, and then we had I, so I was working as a designer. I was still working as the manager, managing editor. And I was doing um, sort of all of the like taking care of all the like, when does this come out? And therefore, when do we have need to have this part done? And when do we need to have, so all the project management stuff. Um, and then in the last five years, I've, I've managed to, we've managed to hire amazing people who have taken on a lot of that role, because the truth is like, I'm good at those things, but my heart lies in the writing and the creation and that kind of stuff. So my job now has moved very much more toward designing stuff and making things and being on the design team and, you know, le leading some projects. Like I just led the, it's um, the old gods of Appalachia game. I was the lead designer, which meant that I led the team and, um, you know, made sure that things were happening on time and that we got all the art and that kind of stuff. But like some days I just get to be a designer, just get to write things. Like I, I just wrote a ton of artifacts for this modern magic setting and like, they're so fun and I'm so happy with them. And like that, may, that's where my joy is. So I would say in the last year, I've got to move into this place where I'm doing a lot more design and a lot less of the other stuff. That's great. That's great. When you were doing this, this managing editor, is that like you're line editing? You're just reading other people's stuff all day long. Is that kind of what you were doing? Or because you're above, you're like, you know, managing editor, were you? managing yeah. the other editors who are doing all that and just kind of overseeing them what is that really um i think it's a little bit of both so it's it is doing line editing it's doing copy editing developmental editing it's making sure projects are turned in on time it's making sure we have editors lined up to edit those projects and then you go through all of the editors comments and like sort of you're the bridge between the editor and the designer and so you're saying okay well this comment makes sense so we're going to accept it and then you go to the designer and you say this i'm not really sure that i we want to make this change like how do you feel about it is this universal do we make it here and so there's a lot of conversations that are back and forth of and like you know making sure the style guide is up to date so that the editors have a thing to work from so there's a lot of pieces parts that really have to do with like our language 
It's also about getting sensitivity readers. It's about making sure that like we have a we have a, a thing about like language to make sure that we're using language that's not ableist and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of management of words and there's a lot of management of people and then there's a lot of bridging those those multiple things. So it's quite an intense job. And it's our current managing editor is Terry Latorco, who's amazing at it. And I'm so glad she's here because um, she just, yeah, she makes everything so, so much smoother and she makes our books look, look and read amazing. And, and that's awesome. That's great. I know there's sometimes the, you know, I wrote this and then an editor says, we need to fix this. And the writer goes, no, we don't. Darn it. Shame. <laughs> but you having been now, now, now you're in a very interesting position because now you're the co- your co-owner co-founder right <laughs> but you're also the designer you used to be the managing editor so now yeah. when they come to you you've got all of these different hats you've had so how, how hard is it for them to come to you and be like listen you wrote this thing in here and we kind of want to you know uh i just kind of talk to you like how does that work out and that's obviously very- talking to you it seems like that's not going to be an issue but i want to get your perspective no. on that that's amazing. That is so astute. Um, it is totally true that it is weird. It is it is hard to get people to be like, in this role, I am just the designer. Um, because they do have this deference, I think. And, and we try to, our best to keep the company really flat, like to to only make it a hierarchy when it's necessary, um, which is, doesn't happen very often when you have a great team. So it's mostly just pretty flat. But I do think that like it helps that all of none of our team is divas. We've all done this for a long time. Our goal is to make the book the best that it can be, and so or the game the best that it can be. And so, we, while we sometimes have big discussions, like Sean Reynolds and I have some really intense discussions sometimes about language and like what we're trying to say. Um, he's a fantastic developer, and I'm someone who's like, you know, words have to sound pretty. Right. <laughs> so, so we can have these moments where we're we're really kind of haranguing about like what what we're what our goal is and how we get there. Um, but it's never sort of a negative experience. It's just the understanding that we are both working really hard to get to the place where the game is the best that it can be. And also like you have to pick your battles, right? Sometimes you're just like, I can't, like, I can't care about that because I really care about this other thing. So let's talk about this other thing that I want the language to be different or there's a lot of conversations about like, this is what I was attempting to say, or this is what I really wanted to this. I really want this, you know, um, element of the design to be doing this. And so we try to get to the root of like what, what we're really doing and not get so caught up in like the way that we do it, I guess. Um, so yeah, we try to keep it really level and we try to be like, I, I mean, I can't, I, I, I think that's the great thing about having a great team and a great culture is that people you know, I mean, sometimes we get grumpy at each other, but we're always like, oh, I'm just such a grump today. Like, just ignore everything I'm saying. Right. Let's just do this. And I think there's a lot of just like real humanity in that team. And and that's, sorry, there's a big truck outside. I didn't hear that. <laughs> okay, good. Um, and that, I think that makes it a lot easier to bring things back and forth, right? And there's also like that idea of, of, of active listening, where you listen to what someone is bringing you carefully and without sort of responding right away so that they feel safe, so that they feel like they, there's a place where they can bring these changes or needs or, you know, all those kinds of things. Because I think we're taught that corporate doesn't have space for that. The companies don't allow that. And, you know, we we work really hard to make sure that people feel safe yeah. to do, to bring, whether it's an editing change or a, a bigger issue, right? We want We want to create that workspace. When you're going through and you're putting stuff together, would you say that your strengths are in the story 
and the building the background of a world or do you think that like you're really good at throwing together like here's some of the mechanics of the the whatever the who's a what's it the the numbers <laughs> and the the way that it the way that it works sort of spiel um do you think you have strengths and weaknesses in those? Or are you pretty good at both? Or or what is your opinion? Opinion on yourself, which is always really hard to answer. Yeah, it is. Um, it is, except that I kind of do know the answer. I'm uh I am pretty great at world building and I'm pretty great at language. And I think I'm pretty solid in characterization characters. I'm really creative. I did not understand numbers to save my life. Like I, thank goodness we have a developer who's amazing. Um, and I've gotten better at this sort of more technical, tactical numbers, game design stuff. Like I've gotten a better intuitive understanding of it, but it's never my going to be my strength because it's not my passion. Like yeah. I will tell stories all day long and I will make up worlds and I will make up words and you know, I, I, characters, like, I love that stuff so much. But like, once you start getting me down to the place where you're like, and how much damage does this character do? I'm like, I don't know. He just makes you feel crappy. (laughs) 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 Right. He gives you the worst, you know, the worst dream you've ever had. And you have it every night for 10 days. So you feel crappy. And, and, you know, then I'm like, all right. And I have to figure out like what that means in a game design term. Yeah. Um, thankfully, we do narrative heavy games, so uh, it it really plays to my strengths in that way. Um, but yeah, the I don't love the, I don't love mechanics that much. They're right. just not my. I'm gonna switch gears just a little bit, just a wee tad here. Uh, we're talking about game design and inclusiveness and and being comfortable. Uh, and I and I'm and I'm bringing this up because I know we have a handful of audience members who listen because they have difficulties with eyesight. And they almost always ask game designers um, what the plan is as far as visual goes in this modern digital age. You know, obviously mm-hmm. you've got the world of D&D Beyond where you can zoom in and look at things and it's very accessible for people with uh, vision issues. Are you guys looking at anything like that or any any issues with that or any, any way to incorporate that for people with, say, a vision impairment in a world that is visual? Yeah, yeah, we have, this is a thing that we have tried so hard to do well and to do right. And I feel like we still have so far to go. Um, We, like, it's, it's, this is an interesting struggle where the graph, our our layout people are like, look at how pretty it looks. We're like, yeah, but you can't read it. Like, (laughs) I can read it. You have to make it readable and bigger. Um, And, and we do try to make our PDFs accessible in various ways. Um, but it's, it's a difficult thing because the technology is always changing and everyone uses different kinds of readers. And so we have, we have done things that make it easier. I don't think we were, we are yet where we would like to be. Um, and some of that's just that it's hard to find resources. It's hard to figure out. Like it, it reminds me a little bit of when we were working on No Thank You Evil. I wanted to find the best font for kids who were struggling to read. Yeah. And so I was doing all this research on dyslexia and what's the best font and like anything else that's reading difficulty. And there was no consensus at all. There was nothing th- that said this is the best font for kids. And so all we could do is calve off the ways that made it difficult. So like any extraneous elements or things that were all in caps or certain colors and so we could we could sort of get to the closest we could by saying, okay, well, we know this doesn't work. We know this doesn't work. We know this makes it hard. We know this makes it hard. And so I feel like right now we're in that space. 
Um, and so if, if people have like a great resource to point us to, we are, we are all in for that because I think we're not doing as good of a job as we would like to in our hearts. And we just haven't figured out how to get there yet. Um, but we do try to make things as accessible as we can. And, and what, you know, some of the ways that we do that are like, we, we've had to work with the printer to be like, things need to be brighter. Things need to be, have more contrast, like, which is just a, a really weird part of printing where sometimes things come back and it's all sort of flattened yeah. in terms of the contrast, which makes it more difficult. And so there's all these ways that we're, that we, that you can make things better. Um, but it, what I don't know is how to make it perfect or if there isn't even a perfect, cause yeah. it would be nice. It would be nice if we could get there. Yeah, for sure. That would be really awesome. I mentioned this beforehand, before we got started, because it's something that I think is important as a person who sees it. And while I am a guy in the gaming space, uh, there is a definite change for the better that's been happening over the course of the last couple of years in the gaming space. It's no longer the boys club, which mm -hmm. I always hated. I always thought that that was ridiculous. Ever since I first started gaming 20 years ago, I'm like, no, let's get all of our female friends in here and play because it'll be a lot better. <laughs> Um, how have you seen the gaming space change over the last course of the last couple of years? And how do you think you guys have done in, in helping to usher that in? Mm. Well, I, I also think that it's changed so much for the better. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not yet where we would like it to be, but I think the growth is just, I don't know. It's, it just makes me so happy. I was just thinking about when you were talking about this, you know, going to game hall con this, this is the first convention I had been to sort of sort of pre-pandemic so it's been a while yeah and seeing the the just the beautiful range of people who play our games and who had nice things to say and who saw themselves in our art or in our language like like I was brought to tears twice by someone like telling me the story of how my work helped them or affected them I'm gonna get teary just talking about it and like there is no greater thing you can do as a creative I don't think than touch someone's life right then make them then make them realize they're not alone in this world. And so I feel like when you get people who are designing games from their experiences, from the heart, you know, from this passion of, of wanting people to feel seen, it just makes such a big change. It's just such a ripple out change. Right. And it's a small thing. And we also do this with our team. You know, we have a really great diverse team. And the reason we do that is because they have stories to tell that no one else can tell. They have games in them that no one else can make. And so, you know, we were talking earlier about whether, you know, people bringing their ideas to us and like, we're like, we hired you as a designer because you are the person you are. We want you to, to tell your story. And so that's one of the ways I think that we create space, I hope, for people to feel seen, to feel supported, to feel like they can be themselves at the table and ideally in their lives. And so I do think, boy, we're just seeing such a huge change. We're seeing so many more people not just be present in those spaces, but have support in those spaces, have a team, have a community um, find themselves. Because like, there is, I think it's very hard to walk into a place where you don't feel welcome or you don't feel seen or you don't feel represented by yourself. And so the more community yeah. of people who are like you, the better, because now you have support and you have a team and it's not so hard and it just grows sort of by itself. And there's so many companies out there who are making change, like who are just sort of a, 
doing this amazing work and so many of them are quiet about it but you can see that out there and you can see it and it's making room for more designers who are independent to do amazing things and that makes me happy too because there's right gamers a, a, a diverse group of gamers is one thing but like people making games getting their hands in there getting their stories out there that's that's just a whole other level i love it i love it it's awesome you talked about the um the kids game you guys worked on Tell me about that. Tell me about that. Because I love I, I love games that include the young ones, that, that bring the kids in and, and let them understand what role playing is without having to be bogged down in numbers and, and you know, deep, crazy, you know, politics or whatever it may be. They can just sit down. They can just play something simple and have fun being imaginative kids and give them that introduction. So tell us about this game. Tell us how it came about. Uh, I want to hear all about it. <laughs> so no thank you evil is the name of it and it came about because we had players who were taking Numenera which is actually pretty dark and adopt adapting it to their kids so they could play with their kids and we were like that's a lot of work and that's awesome but you know we could also we could also do that thing um and so we had a lot of conversations at the beginning about what this is because our goal was family game and here's the thing like family game has a weird connotation like yeah. That, you know, family does. friendly, which is not what we meant by that. What we meant by that was like, you can have three siblings of entirely different ages who can sit down and play this game because it felt to us like that was a, that was a thing that role-playing games had not yet tackled. And so we were like, all right, well, a four-year-old, a six-year-old and an eight-year-old have totally different ideas of what's fun. If they have different ideas of how much they can take on and what's interesting. And so like we, we broke it down into like, okay, there's a level where, you don't, you just don't have, it's not as complex right. and you can play at the same table as your 10 year old sibling who wants the complexity and wants all the rules and that kind of stuff. So that was one of the first things that we realized was if we wanted a game that you didn't have to invite six, eight year olds over to play right. that you could play at the table with your family and adults too. And so we really based heavily on like fairy tales and, and the things that like, I'm a 12 year old at heart. So it wasn't that hard to get into sort of the brain of a 12 year old. It's like, I can have a robot and a pet dog that talks and a ghost dog and a rabbit dog. And like yeah. all these things can be true. And I can throw pizza as a weapon and I can, you know, do all these things because we were like, this is how kids see the world. Anything's possible. And we really wanted to sort of push that forward, this idea that you could do anything. Um, and then we also, as we were designing, I was very much like, I felt like we were like, you're competing with puppies and video games, right? And so like, it had to be something that kept their attention, that was easy, right. that was engaging. And so like, there's things like, you know, you can talk to a T-Rex if you put your sleeves like this and you, you know, you do this. And so there's like activities too. Um, so that there's this, there's this way of engaging that doesn't just require you to sit still at the table. Cause we know how hard that is for all of us <laughs> really. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it's low math. It's very tactile in a way that you can touch things. There are ways to, to play if you're if you're nonverbal or if you're selectively nonverbal, you can play without communicating or talking. Um, and so we tried to kind of cover all the things. Light math, we figured kids can do up to six and be cool with it. But once you get past six, so we did a D6. We tried to do fonts that were really readable for kids who are struggling to read. So we kind of tried to like basically destroy all the hurdles uh to gaming with um with families and um and on top of that like included a ton of art that was designed to showcase kids of all sizes and ages and abilities and interests 
Um, and that was super fun. Like I loved writing the art orders for that because you just, you just get this wild, amazing, imaginative stuff. That's awesome. That was a very long answer, but there's there a lot in that game. <laughs> there is a lot in that game. And, you know, we'll, we, you know, we might just have to have you come back down the road to talk about details like that. Just do that for every <laughs> single game you guys have. <laughs> Ooh, that would be long. Uh, obviously, Numenera, you know, probably is that I'm guessing that's your biggest game, right? Like uh, that's the one I've known for a while. It's certainly our flat. I would say maybe our flagship game. Yeah. Um, I think Invisible Sun is probably like our sort of the, the game that we are known for sort of after that um, okay. because of its sort of weirdness. Um, and there's a lot of controversy when we launched the game because it's quite expensive and large and has tons of pieces. Um, and then Cypher System, I think, because it's so variable, people can play in all yeah. the genres they want to um, and it's sort of pick up and play. So I think it's hard to know from the inside, but that's my guess. <laughs> okay. okay. And you've got a new Cypher System coming out, right? Is it a new system or a new a new book? Uh, we have new books coming out. The one that I'm working around right now is, is called It's Only Magic. It's Modern Magic. And so, like, if you loved, like, The Magicians or, you know, any of the sort of modern magic where you get to sort of walk around the city and there are witches and and also you get to go. Like, I just made this really cool cypher that's called Moss Girl where it, like, protects you and you turn into moss and no one can find you. <laughs> and so I think um, I think that for people who are who want to play some modern magic, it's it's going to be super fun. Uh, Dominique Dickey is is making this setting and it's a very, very cool setting in there. Um, they've just got all kinds of cool ideas and they're doing really neat stuff with it. So, um, so, yeah, that's we that's one of the things that we're working on right now. OK. And for those that are like strictly like I only play d and I only play. <laughs> have fun, how would you describe the system to them? How would you explain what it is and what the world's like and kind of what the system's like? Um, the system is quite narrative focused um, and it's super easy. Uh, the GM doesn't have to roll any dice so they can walk around the table and scare their players as they like. Um, and you create a character by making a simple sentence. I'm a blank blank who blanks. Um, so I'm a funny writer who you know, is going to have pizza for dinner, whatever, whatever. So it's, it's just a sentence, right? Um, so you can be, you can be a fighter. You can be a, you can be kind of anything you want to be because when the, you combine the sentences together, when you combine the sections of the sentence together, there's just thousands of possibilities. Um, and then it's all just on a, a level system. Everything has a level. You roll against the level, make it easier, harder. It's super simple. Um, and it is really narrative driven. So you don't spend a lot of time looking at your character sheet. So if you're really into like numbers and lots of dice and all that kind of stuff, it's going to seem very light for you. But if you're into the narrative stuff um, and making cool characters who do cool and interesting things, it's yeah. probably very much up your alley. Nice. Nice. Do you have any new Kickstarters coming out, coming up that you can think um, of? Uh, yeah. Yes. I do. I can Th I talk that about that. You can it? talk about that. You can I don't talk. Know if, we if you can't it. talk about it, just say I don't think I can talk about them. Okay. I don't think I can talk about it. But we did just finish a, a Kickstarter for Invisible Sun, where we um, it's a reprint because we sold out a couple of times, um, and so we're doing a new book as part of that. Um, and we we typically do two Kickstarters a year. That's our kind of company business model. Okay. So you can expect two Kickstarters in twenty twenty four. What about the uh, the devil's dandy dogs? You mentioned that to me earlier, and I was like, "Wait, what's that? I, I don't, I didn't <laughs> see that. I didn't see that anywhere." And then I look back, it's like, "Oh, I did see that." Yeah, we did a we did a Kickstarter that was sort of devil themed. Um, Monty had a couple of ideas for these cool narrative. Um, 
interesting games that didn't use a cipher system, but uses, used something else. Um, and as I was talking about earlier, he came to the team and said, hey, do you have anything that you want to do that's devil themed? Um, and before this, I had written a game called We Are All Mad Here, which is a fairy tale and mental health and combines the two. Yeah. And in that, I had written a, a poem about the devil's dandy dogs, which is something that I love, um, the story of the dogs that help the devil. And I was like, I want to write a game about the devil's dandy dogs. And so uh, we made this game. It's a narrative game. Uh, no prep. You show up. You have a pre-generated character that is a dog who collects souls for the devil. Um, and the whole game is who can tell the best story about all the dogs going out and collecting the soul. And so you, the story is that you come back with the soul and now you're, you're trying to entertain the devil by telling them the story of going to get the soul and you're playing cards. And so uh, there's like a tarot deck that sort of guides the whole story. And then the dogs have their abilities and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's very fun. It's like a very pack oriented, group oriented thing. Um, and it's all, it's very much about taking on the role of the storyteller as your dog would. So there's like a, there's like a frivolous dog who maybe doesn't always tell the truth as part of telling their story. And then there's the, you know, the protective dog who's like, I did all the things. Right. And so, um, so you get to like really jump into these personas and these perspectives to tell these stories. And I think the deck of cards is huge. So you're always going to have a completely different story and it can be in any setting. It can be modern or magical or mystical right. or space or whatever, whatever the cards come up. So it's got a lot of versatility to it. Are they all going after, are they all telling the same story or are they all telling yeah. their own story? So they all went as a group, went and got yeah, this one soul. <laughs> I love yeah. it. And so they get these, and so you, and you get these packs of the packs where you get like a group activity, like a group ability that you can use, but then everyone has their own abilities too. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty wonderful. I, we played it at Game Hole Con quite a bit. And I know that a couple of jams got to make their players cry because of like the moving story that came up and I was like, yes. I love <laughs> so that because it, it really reminds me from, from your explanation, it reminds me of the old, like, um, the improv theater, the yes and theory, the, the, yep, yeah. that's what happens. And this, yeah. and you have to, you have to go along with what's going on. You can't, yeah, you can't say, no, that's not how it happened. And, and I love yeah. that because that is what makes improv hilarious. And I can see yeah. that being what makes that game super fun, especially yeah, with cards well, and other things that affect it. Yeah. And one of the, one of the goals is to fail because the, when you fail, you tell a wilder story like the most wild thing happens when you fail really big. And so it's, uh, in most games, you're like trying to succeed all the time. But in this game, like if you fail, it's awesome because then like the big, wild, wonderful thing happens and you get to really impress the devil. <laughs> so it's kind of got a backwards twist that I really love. I love that. I love that. What do you think is your, uh, your, your favorite thing that you can talk about right now that's like recently came out? You're like, this just came out and I am so dang excited for it. Again, that you can talk about. Uh, <laughs> that you're um, like you know, oh my gosh i can't stop talking about it i feel like the devil's dandy dogs actually might be that um because it was a really hard game for me um to write because it was a whole new game system and um, it took me a long time just we we played <laughs> we probably played half a dozen internal play tests where it was just so broken like it just didn't work and, you know, that's a that's a real place where you realize as a creator that, like, you have to have this ego that that allows you to the coyotes are barking outside right now. So perfect time, perfect time. Making me laugh. Um, I don't so need a soundtrack. To, there we go. <laughs> you have to have this real ego that you're like, all right, I'm making a thing that matters and I believe in it, even though it's 
just falling apart at the table. But then you have to have this humility where you're just like, okay, and it's falling apart and that's okay because I'm going to figure out how to fix it. And everyone's helping me get better. And so like it, there, those places of play tests are just really, can be really emotional when you put your heart into this game. Um, so I think Devil's Dandy Dogs probably is the thing. I will say that Predation, is, which is the far future dinosaur game that I wrote, is sort of one of my real heart spaces um and i'm writing an adventure for that right now for something that's going to come out next year and i'm remembering how much i love that game and then i just wrote a fairy tale adventure for the we are all mad book so i feel like i'm like right now going back and revisiting some of the stuff that i've done in the past and it's always lovely when you go back and do that and you like the thing that you made yeah. <laughs> you still like it you're like oh thank goodness all right i want to ask you you mentioned about how that was kind of unbalanced at that one point and you're like you had to fix it and play test what is monty cook's games process for mm -hmm. play testing like do you have like a set group of people that just play test the game do you just go to conventions and play test with the public like what is the process there for doing that especially with the game say you've got a game coming out and you want to play test it but you can't tell anybody you're doing that or you're you're <laughs> you're working on something but you don't want everyone to know i know we've had game designers in the past that they say stuff and people are like literally zooming in on youtube videos that are on there to try and find little tidbits so what do you guys kind of do for your play tests well, you know, so it's interesting because Kickstarter sort of helps with that in two ways. One of the ways is we we often have a playtest level where you can back and you get the stuff early and then you can playtest it if you want to. So basically it's a it's a level where you get this to see the stuff early. And then we also send you playtest materials. And some of the feedback that we get from that is super great. Um, the other way that Kickstarter helps is that we don't start working on something until it's been a successful Kickstarter. So there are, there are very few things that we can't talk about that we're already working on. There are things that we can't talk about that we have, that we're planning the Kickstarter for. But if we're at the level of playtesting a product, it has almost always been in a successful Kickstarter. And so the world knows that it's coming. Okay. Um, we do do most of our playtesting in-house with our team. We playtest every Wednesday in the afternoons, uh, sort of a, a section of our design team who can come. Uh, we just finished playtesting My Fairy Tale Adventure, and then we were playtesting um, another, The Strange Adventure that's going to be out in the Cyber System uh, Adventure Book next year. And so, and the reason that we do that is because it's good for the game, but it's also really good for our designers. It allows us to think critically about the game that we're playing at the table. Um, it, it makes us see what someone else's uh, flaws are, but also what someone else's strengths are, and we might be able to, how we might be able to utilize those in our own games. Um, and there's a there's an understanding, I think, when you play test for other designers, that they understand how to pinpoint on the thing that's broken rather than try to give you the solution, right? Because it's the designer's job to come up with a solution for what's broken. And it's the playtester's job to say, this feels broken. Um, and then we can, you know, you can brainstorm and stuff. Um, so we do most of our playtest stuff in-house. We run through the adventure. And depending on who it is, like what it is, like I had someone else run an, an old Gods of Appalachia adventure because I wanted to make sure what I had written was right for the the person playing it because when you're playing when you're gming your own adventure that you wrote you know it's supposed to be in there and so um you are play testing different yeah. things um like levels and stuff like that but with old gods the language is so fluid and and florid and has all this wonderful sort of sing-song essence to it that i needed to make sure that underneath that 
it was really clear what you needed to be doing. So I had someone else run it for me. And so they, so that I wasn't there to give advice. Um, and so I think it depends on the game. Like I said, for, for two of the games that I've had hard times with, we did long play tests or no, thank you evil. We took it out into the world and we specifically play tested it with kids who were maybe on the autism spectrum or who were neurodivergent in different ways. We had a couple of kids who were nonverbal. And so we like, we really play tested the heck out of it at that level because we wanted to make sure that we were really meeting those needs. Right. Um, so I think it depends on the game a little bit. Do you find that doing the play test is more work than fun? Or do you still have, <laughs> or do you still enjoy? Cause that's the thing. Like you're going out there in your role, you're, you're, you're role playing, you're going to a convention and you're playing, you're playing the game, you're designing a game. You're putting, when you sit down at a table, to play it do you get to sit down and enjoy it or do you sit down and you're like this is work i would rather be somewhere else you know i think most of the time because our our designers are so advanced i do enjoy it and it's either because i'm enjoying the play or because i'm enjoying the puzzle of sort of figuring out what's not working and, right. and my brain likes both of those things um and so sometimes you get both in the same play test and sometimes you get one or the other depending on sort of how far along the thing is that's being written um, as a GM or as the designer, sometimes it's really, like I was saying before, sometimes it's really hard. Really got, you know, when we play tested the dinosaur companions for predation, those were also really broken. Like the first three or four times and I was like, I'm trying so hard. You guys, I don't know if this is ever going to work. And I was just sort of having this, like, this was so important to me right. and we couldn't, we just couldn't figure out how to make it work. But then that moment where you're like, Oh, I have the answer. I have an idea. And then that next play test and it works. You're just like, I don't know. There's just this, you know, it's, it's, it's the reason you do the hard work. It's the yeah. reason you do the hard thing is to have these moments of joy. So I think it really depends on, on kind of what's happening at the table. Right. Do you have any upcoming conventions or anything? I think you said uh, you might be at Northwest Con and Emerald City Comic Con. Yep, I'll be at Norwest Con and Emerald City Comic Con. Um, Montica Games always goes to Gen Con and Game Hole Con, so a some segment of the team will be there. I know we do some international stuff as well, but I don't usually get to go to those. Um, so those are the big ones in the spring. Yeah. Okay. Do you find that you have people that come to some of these gaming conventions with some of your older books to have signed? Yeah. And yeah, how does that feel? How, do, how does that feel to you? Good. And do other people go, what's this? And then and they're like, what's this? Wait a second. You did, you know, the, all of these other books? You know, it's, I think it's interesting because people often apologize when they bring non-gaming things to sign. And I think that's really sweet, but I don't know why. Cause like, is there anything that makes your heart happier than someone being, I love this book and I brought it and will you sign it? Yeah. Um, so I think, I do think like sometimes people bring their erotic, I also wrote a nonfiction book about sex. And so sometimes people are a little more discreet when they sort of bring those over, you know, and you want people to be comfortable um, so I think, yeah, they do bring someone, I had a short story published earlier this year and someone said at Gamehole Con was like, I loved that short story. And that blew me away. Cause it was just this short story in this magazine that like, I don't know, I didn't expect anyone to have ever even heard of much less read. And so there are these moments where I don't know, it's like, it, it makes me always remember that we are, we sort of do that sort of stereotypical thing with, we contain multitudes, right? We are interested in so many things as human beings. And I love that when those when those places intersect um, and people love something else that I've worked on, I just think it's the best. That's great. That's great. Well, I look forward to uh, one of these conventions, hoping to run across <laughs> you and say hello. And uh, I will have my sharpie in hand. <laughs> awesome. Uh, people can find you on Mastodon, Shanna Germain at Mastodon.social. Blue Sky, Shanna Germain, 
shanajermain.bsky. I don't even know if I'm supposed to say bluesky.social or just say bsky.social. I don't understand (laughs) how that works. I mean, I've also got an account there too, so I can't really complain too much. (laughs) Or at Patreon, you've got a Patreon. Shana Germain at Patreon. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, it's very, um, the Patreon is, is very much my heart space. I kind of do these love rants every week or so about something that I'm thinking about. They're just these second kind of circuitous essays about something that's in my mind or that's important to me. Um, I also do like little craft essays about how to keep focused and do better. We do write-ins on Zoom, like it depends on my schedule, but sometimes a couple times a week. Um, we have a Discord. So it's really just like this community of of writers or of readers. Um, and we talk a lot about like what we love and what makes us happy in the world and how to keep doing uh, the thing that we're passionate about. And so, yeah, it's it's it has kind of grown into this wonderful community, which I really, really adore. Awesome. And of course, MontyCookGames.com. Go check that out. Check out all the things, guys. Go and give Shanna a follow on all the social medias and uh, check out the Patreon and uh, and and give all your support. Uh, they're doing you, you guys are doing awesome work so thank you so thank much you. for everything thanks for having me this has been really fun yeah for those that are watching live stream uh stick around ask some of your questions throw them in chat we will get to your questions in chat so uh uh throw them in there and we'll get to them uh it's, it's gonna be gonna be awesome that's everybody's favorite part everybody that's a guest they love the live audience questions at the end they're like oh my god that that end part was great every time so uh i look forward to your guys's questions and uh we'll we'll get to that here in just a moment but for all the listeners i want to thank you all for supporting our november fundraiser we raised over a thousand dollars for it prostate cancer testicular cancer mental health awareness suicide prevention thank you so much with your help the team that i am a part of raised over $5,500 for this charity. It was a great cause. It was a great month. You guys did awesome. And thank you all to everybody listening who participated in November. I appreciate you all for that so very much. Also, our next episode, we're going to be joined by Fate of the Norns RPG owner, a friend of the show, Andrew Velkoskis. He's going to be joining us live December 18th. That podcast will be available December 19th, right in time the holiday season because we all know that odin is santa claus right we all know that right <laughs> in january of course we're gonna have paranormal researcher and author amelia cotter is going to be joining us to talk about ghosts and the paranormal we're also going to have Corey Pineska, who is a huge award-winning board game designer we're gonna have mike mason from chaosium games author deborah wild we're gonna have an amazing amazing 2024 so thank you for being here make sure to rate review follow click all the buttons do all the subscriptions i appreciate it so much so, for Shanna Germain, a.k.a. Shanna Germain, because i got to pronounce it right, I am Nick, and thank you for listening to Epic Realms. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. <laughs> <laughs>